Stay tuned next for Science, a Candle in the Dark, here on KFCF 88.1 FM. friends and welcome to another edition of science a candle in the dark this is our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe the show is produced in association with the central valley cafe scientifique where we strive to make science a part of our public discourse especially here in california's central valley i'm your host dr marusudan katti from the department of biology at fresno state and this is going to be a special episode for us because we are building up to another celebration of Darwin Day, which is coming up in February. <coughs> so, and we have a special guest who will talk to us about Darwin and what he means for us in 2016. But before we get into that, I want to share a couple of interesting uh, research stories that have appeared since I last spoke to you on this show. And this actually refers back to something we heard in the Cafe Scientifique a, a couple of months ago uh, when we had a conversation between a, molecular, uh, a microbiologist colleague of mine, Dr. Trisha Van Laar, and a sociologist, Dr. Andrew Jones, where we talked about CRISPR, which is this new technique for editing DNA and doing potentially some very fine-scale adjustments to your to the genome of organisms potentially to be able to fix genetic problems uh, if you want if you don't remember that or if you want to hear more about that I, I suggest you look back in our podcast catalog and look at I think it was episode 9 uh, the the new developments is that well at the as 2015 ended the journal science published by the American Association for the Advancement of Science declared CRISPR as the breakthrough of the year and as if to prove its potential just in the past month there have been a series of studies that have demonstrated the potential for this gene editing or DNA editing technique to potentially fix some debilitating genetic disorders so there was <coughs> several papers in science uh, about a month ago based on studies conducted by, by separate teams working on mice where they were dealing with the issue of a particular kind of muscular dystrophy this is called Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and uh, it's a it's a muscle degenerating disorder and there is a particular protein produced by a certain gene that's involved in causing the problem and one of the challenges they had was that this is a disorder that appears in adults and typically occurs in muscle cells where the cells are not dividing which means you can't use like gene therapy type of techniques which rely on stem cells that can divide and create new cells to fix a problem like this so what they were able to do in these studies were to actually use the technique of CRISPR to go and edit the gene responsible for the protein causing the disorder and essentially heal the injured muscle cells and they were able to show that, for example, I think in, in one of the studies in the mice, they were looking at 
heart muscles, and they were, they were able to show that the muscle actually was functioning better after they had injected this CRISPR-laden you know, drug into the blood of the mice. In a second study that was published in uh, Nature last week, uh, a, a different team, also using the CRISPR technique, was able to use, uh, was able to ac address another problem in mice where, which is again, has some parallels with human diseases, and this was uh, the problem of retinitis pigmentosa. This is, a, again, a genetic inherited disorder wh which causes degeneration in the retina and can cause blindness. And it has to do with uh, a gene uh, producing the protein rhodopsin, which is involved in vision. So again, they were able to, to use CRISPR to edit the gene and alter the production of this protein so that they were able to partially restore vision in mice that had retinitis pigmentosa. So these are both really fascinating new developments. Of course, there are still studies being done in mice, and we may still be some way away from being able to apply these kinds of techniques and to treat genetic diseases in humans. But the promise is really incredible. And of course, as we had that conversation at that time, there's also the, the downside of uh, potentially these techniques being used to edit all kinds of other traits in humans and, and the ethical issues that that raises. So that was a, uh, those are the things that caught my eye in recent weeks in terms of really fascinating developments. And I've been thinking about what one of our you know, big fathers of modern biology, Charles Darwin, might have said if he was to learn about these kinds of studies, these kinds of new discoveries. Because back when he developed his theory of the evolution of life on this planet. He had, of course, no idea about genes or DNA or any of that. So how would Darwin react to something like this if he were to turn up now in 2016? That's a question that always fascinates me. And I'm, a, I'm an unabashed Darwin enthusiast, and uh, I've enjoyed every year organizing some sort of Darwin Day event, either on our campus or for the Cafe Scientifique. And this year, we have another special event with uh, with our guest today, uh, Dr. Don Degrias, who is coming to us from Los Angeles, and she's on the phone right now? From yes. LA. Hi, Don. Good afternoon, Mathieu. Hi. Nice to have you on the show. Same. So Dr. Do Dr. Degrias is the Senior Project Manager for the STEM Collaboratives Project at the California State University Office of the Chancellor. So she sits, you know, in my boss's office, so to speak, in, in Long Beach. And before com coming to the chancellor's office, she was assistant professor of history at Stevens Institute of Technology. And her research centers on the history of water, agriculture, and sustainability in Latin America and beyond. And while running an international project in Ecuador and El Salvador, she also served as main representative for the International Health Awareness Network from 2011 to 2014 to the United Nations. Dr. Degrias participated in the Rio Plus 20 conference and the open working groups for the development of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. She has a deep commitment to sustainable development, which is reflected in her scholarly work, as well as a short documentary film that she's been involved in. And maybe she can tell us more about this film, uh, Not Just Illegals, it's called. 
which is about the plight of Salvadorans and their migration to the U.S. as a result of violence and limited economic opportunities. So welcome to Candle in the Dark, Dr. DeGrius. Thank you so much, Dr. Cady, for inviting me to talk today with you, and especially about one of my favorite subjects, which is Darwin <laughs> and sustainability. That's that is a, a fascinating and interesting connection to think about because much of the the conversation we have these days about sustainability were not really big issues in Darwin's time, right? Well, that's that's <laughs> somewhat true. Uh -huh. It's it's kind of interesting. When I was going back and doing some historical research, I, I'm actually an historian of science mm -hmm. and. As I was working on uh, the chapter that I'm completing for a book manuscript, I was looking at sort of the issues of sustainability and what the mindset was like in the 19th century. And while to a certain extent they didn't call it sustainability, um, there are some things that are connected to it, uh, particularly in thinking about reproduction and thinking about checks on population and the balance between uh, living organisms in the environment. Uh, and uh, I'll talk more about this when I see you up in Fresno for Darwin Day. Next week, but, yeah. You know, yeah, next week. So in, in bringing into that uh, some of Darwin's influences, particularly not so much when he was on the Beagle Voyage, but when he was back in London and he was processing everything that he had seen in his travels for those years, and thinking about the relationships between uh, species and species change that lead up to him coming up with the idea of natural selection as the process by which evolution works. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about Thomas, Thomas Malthus. Yes, of course. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Jeremy Bentham and, mm -hmm. you know, the greatest good for the greatest number idea and how sometimes we tend not to think that social, political, and economic also influences things that we're thinking about in the scientific world. But with respect to coming to Darwin's ideas about what he was seeing with species change, I think it, it makes sense to bring those things in. Yeah, certainly. And uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about Thomas Malthus and the influence he had on not only on Darwin's just thinking, but actually directly influencing his theory of evolution by natural selection. Absolutely. And uh, Darwin kind of has somewhat of an aha moment. So, you know, when uh, most people have a lot of misconceptions about Darwin himself, the man, they also um, aren't really, I, I don't want to say correct, but they're not really, they haven't read on the origin of species by means of natural selection. And so in many cases, they've heard, you know, sidehand uh, about the text and what's in it. Uh, and so when I was teaching at Stevens, I, I taught every year a course on Darwin and the Darwinian Revolution. And it was fun to do that because, one, it exposed a, a group of students in science and engineering to things that they took for granted and didn't know much about the history of. But also it, it forelaid some of the misconceptions about uh, what, what's in that text, what Darwin's talking about. Um, with respect to evolution or what he called um, struggle for existence um, and how that then plays into the changes that take place with species. And so it's nice to sort of get a sense of the social and the political spheres when we're talking about a scientist and a scientist because they're operating within the constraints of, of their worldview. Yeah, and that is actually what fascinates me as well. Because when you mention Darwin, you know, I teach courses in evolution and introductory biology, and when you talk about Darwin, students may have heard about 
you know the, the Galapagos, right? His his famous voyage, right? And and of course with the voyage, they, they typically tend to think only about Galapagos, where, where he only spent a few weeks. Uh, you know, although the whole voyage lasted five years, but That's more interestingly, right. you know, people tend tend to think of the voyage and then. You know, 20 years later, the publication of On the Origin of Species. And in the public consciousness, there's not much knowledge or awareness of what he was actually doing in those 20 years. That's right. So what, as a historian of science, as somebody who's actually been to his, his home and held some of the things that he <laughs> worked on, uh, what can you tell us about, you know, things that people don't generally think about when they think of Darwin? Sure. Um, so one of the things is people always tend to assume that he was already an avowed evolutionist um, by the time he goes on the Beagle voyage, and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he was heavily influenced while he was at Cambridge uh, by a major thinker who ultimately comes to sort of serve as the foundation for uh, a contemporary movement uh, known as intelligent design, and that was William Paley. Mm -hmm. And Paley was a major thinker that um, most Cambridge graduates, uh, especially those that were studying what Darwin was studying, would have read. Uh, and there's a famous analogy that he talks about with respect to a watchmaker. Yeah. And if there's a watchmaker um, who has made the watch that, you know, when you're walking through the woods, you would stumble upon. And then the question always is, well, how did it get there? Was it designed mm -hmm. by some designer or did it happen naturally? And that sort of frames the conversation uh, that Darwin has when he's beginning on the Beagle voyage. And you're correct in saying that you know, he didn't spend as much time in the Galapagos as he did traveling around in, in many other places. And where he comes to a lot of the evidence uh, for his what will become his ideas about how species change through natural selection um, and evolution are actually when he's on the mainland of South America. And he's looking at fossils um, that he comes across as he's on land, as well as comparative to living species. And once he gets back to London, uh, and then event eventually when he moves to Downhouse and he establishes his sort of workspace slash library slash laboratory, you know, he's teasing out a lot of these ideas. And it's through that process of looking at his notes carefully contemplating them in light of scholarship that existed at the time and a significant amount of correspondence. Um, Darwin wrote lots of letters and, in fact, a good portion of what I was looking at with respect to my dissertation topic and, and research was correspondence between Darwin and most of the major thinkers in all branches of uh, scientific inquiry, philosophy, politics, religion. I mean, he was mm -hmm. a very much um, in tune with what was going on and trying to uh, talk with as many experts as he possibly could about these various subjects. And it's a process. I mean, no pun intended, his thoughts did evolve yes. from what he originally thought when he mm -hmm. arrives um, on the voyage and when he gets back and starts to process this information. Yeah, and, and what fascinates me also is even among many biologists, many of my colleagues uh, who may not have read much, you know, much beyond the highlights of his biography people often might refer to you know the period between his voyage and his public the publication of on the origin of species in 1859 as a pause or yeah. at least you know in the 15 years before when he wrote up the manuscript in 1844 but it wasn't really a pause in terms of his life right he was heavily involved in doing science investigations 
on a daily basis. Sure. He had a he um, was very active in working with animal breeders. Um, you know, the British they love their dogs, and um, <laughs> the dog breeders too. in England uh, were doing a lot of obviously artificial selection. And so, in fact, a whole chapter is devoted mm-hmm. to artificial selection in the origin of species. And it's really what lays the foundation for understanding. Well, if these are the things that we can do artificially, meaning human-centered change then there must be the same type of process that happens naturally. And where he gets that from is Charles Lyell, who's a geologist that Darwin is friends with and corresponds uh, quite frequently with. And in fact, Lyell had published in 1831 his Principles of Geology, which are one of the books that Darwin takes with him on the Beagle voyage. And in fact, interestingly enough, Darwin sees himself as more of a geologist when he goes on that voyage than a naturalist in, in the more general sense. Um, but it's Lyell and the idea of the, the, the you know, uniformitarianism, which Lyell gets from James Hutton, is that you know, processes that we can see today happened in the past, and the way that they happened in the past are the way we see them in the present. So therefore we can sort of assume that for that reason, things we see have happened gradually over long periods of time. And that's another really important thing. So just like Malthus, and when when Darwin's reading Malthus and sort of has that moment where he figures things out, it's a building of all of the information that he's sort of taking in as he's comparing what he had seen as he was, you know, in the field, so to speak. And so that process of time from 1838 until, you know, 1858, when the letter is sent to the Linnaean Society to announce the research that ultimately comes what is on the origin of species uh, published in 1859. He's doing an incredible a lot of work, so experimentation, communication, collaboration. I mean, he is you know really uh, very active uh, in the scientific process during that period. Yeah, that's what always strikes me as remarkable. You know, I happen to have a a life-size portrait of Darwin in my office, which I think you saw when you were here for the Darwin exhibit in our library. Uh, And I find myself sort of staring out at him in between my classes and committee meetings and and just wondering about, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as, or we are kept very busy with a lot of the things that are required of us in modern academia. Mm-hmm. Yet he was sort of the, a gentleman scholar, but he wasn't really leisurely, right? He kept himself really busy with a lot of this stuff. He wrote a huge amount of things. He corresponded with people constantly. And and that just strikes me as sort of really remarkable. It is, and in a lot of different subjects, too. So you have, you know, After on the Origin of Species, published as uh, The Descent of Man, published in 1871, works in botany, a huge mm-hmm. amount of work in botany and botanical science, uh, works on um, the processes and earthworms mm-hmm. and soil formation, which is very important. I, I was yeah. an archaeologist before I became an historian of science, and Darwin's work on uh, natural formation processes and culturally shaped processes um, are really important, especially with earthworms with respect to archaeology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he really was active. Barnacles, he yes. did a lot of work with barnacles. So, you know, and it's interesting today because he was that last generation of sort of renaissance, as you pointed out, gentlemen scholars, yeah. where there were not the disciplinary divides that separated um, courses of scientific inquiry that 
was really trying to understand the whole nature of science and dabbled and, and worked very um, heavily in a lot of different areas, interrelated, of course, but I think that's something that we don't do as much today as scientists. We tend to get very disciplinarily focused and, yeah. and, and very tightly um, disciplinary focused. Um, and so sometimes it's like nice to take that step back and sort of think about those big picture items. And that's sort of what I'm going to talk a bit about on uh, the presentation on February 3rd is, you know, most people don't realize what Darwin can contribute to thinking about sustainability because, as you mentioned, he probably didn't know much about it. But in going back and looking at some of the chapters of The Origin of Species, there's an awful lot that one can pull out yes. that can talk about things that would be useful for modern-day scholars and scientists about what role does Darwin and Darwinian evolutionary theory play in thinking about these sorts of issues in the 21st century. Yeah, that's what is really remarkable. And and just thinking about the, the really s huge breadth of things that he read and wrote about, uh, I want to ask you, transition a bit and ask you uh, about the, the reflecting on that and what we are trying to do as educators now and you know you're sure. you're uh, managing your project senior project manager for this new stem collaboratives project uh, which is trying to address some of the preparation of our students in the universities f to do to do science in the in the modern context what can you tell us about that Sure. So um, uh, the Sam Collaboratives Project is actually a Helmsley Charitable Trust-funded initiative that is looking, as you noted, to, mm -hmm. to keep more students interested in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and particularly underrepresented students. And so it, it starts in the summer before students begin in the California State University system, and it provides integrated interventions using high-impact practices, and that's a lot of jargon. But basically it means providing the students with a lot of support uh, throughout their first year of their um, experience in the CSU with the hope that that type of support will encourage them to stay in the STEM disciplines and ultimately graduate from the CSU with a STEM degree. There was a report that came out in 2012 by the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, or PCAST, that said that, you know, in order for the United States to remain competitive, we need to produce one million more degree holders in the STEM fields. And that was really the, the, the impetus for the project that I'm working on. And there are eight campuses, of which Fresno State is one, yeah. that are, are working through trying to understand you know, what are the best mechanisms that we can use to keep students engaged and interested, particularly early on when they tend to be taking the courses um, that are a little bit more difficult than they might be used to in high school and aren't really exciting or engaging that you know, would keep them through them even though they might be difficult, particularly things like math or um, the introductory courses. And so it's the way to sort of in, encourage active learning or flipped classrooms as well as first-year experiences, supplemental instruction, all sorts of things that we could do to see how they might keep those students interested and engaged. And so far, I'm so pleased to say, um, the data has shown early on that it is making a difference. So these initiatives in the eight campuses that are initially working with this project are seeing a significant impact. And those students who are 
participating in the STEM collaboratives uh, initiatives on their campuses are actually doing better in their courses, their overall GPAs, as well as in their science and math classes. And that that's something that is really encouraging. And of course, you know, we we all talk about and understand the the motivation, including you know President Obama's sort of national level calls for more STEM majors, as well as individual students wanting to get degrees in science, technology, engineering, and math as as you know stepping stones to a career. Mm -hmm. But absolutely. But w as somebody who's involved in in teaching in this program, I'm I'm also especially when I think about Darwin, and, you know, I, I wonder about how we create the space for these students who have such busy lives and are dealing with the challenges of these college courses. How do we also create the space for them to sort of be able to take a somewhat broader view, step back occasionally to see the big picture? Mm, it's a great question. I think part of it has to do with where I see this project evolving. <laughs> no pun intended, too. <laughs> Um, which is giving those students those spaces. So one is trying to encourage the faculty who are teaching some of the introductory classes that the students are taking in their first two years to have either research-like experiences or actual research um, opportunities for their students early on. You know, one of the things that I always tried to share with my students uh, is that you know, science is an engaged, active process and that, you know, by doing these things, you know, so going out in the field or working in the laboratory and having that hands-on experience really does make a difference. And when times are difficult or, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, it's that experience that will bring the student back and say, hey, I really want to do this because it's just so cool to do. And in fact, it brings to light a funny anecdote about Darwin early mm -hmm. on in his career. So when he was um, still at university, he was on break, and he lived um, in Shrewsbury, which is on the sort of western edge of um, England. And he was out riding with his cousin, and beetle collecting was all the rage at the time. Yeah. So they were out and they were collecting beetles and, you know, Darwin is a young man at this point and, you know, not very experienced in sort of being a naturalist, but, you know, knew how to identify species to a certain extent and, and look for, you know, things that, that seem to be rare um, that a collector or a museum might be interested in. So he was out, he's collecting a beetle, he finds one, he's holding it in his hand. <laughs> he, he travels along a little bit further into the woods, and he finds another beetle that's rarer than the first one that he found. So he grabs that in his other hand. Continues on a bit further, and he finds a third beetle that's actually even rarer than the two that he's already collected. And he can't quite figure out how he's going to collect this third beetle. So he very quickly scoops up the third beetle and throws it in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well... Sometimes beetles do have it as a protective measure yeah. um, evolutionarily. Yes. Um, they emit a toxic substance that really doesn't taste all that good. Yeah. So, of course, Darwin, you know, does that, and the beetle emits this toxic substance that doesn't taste very good in his mouth, so he spits out that beetle and drops the other two. <laughs> so he goes back and finds his cousin, and he tells him the story, and they go back to the house at the end of the day, and they're, rec they're, they're recollecting what had happened, and his cousin had, you know, the thought, and he says to everyone and shares, you know, Charles, he was, you know, such a great scientist, he was ready to give his life up for science. And, <laughs> 
you know, in fact, you know, that, that he was thinking of that way. But that's kind of it. You know, you, mm-hmm. you want to be so excited about what you're doing. Exactly, yeah. Um, and that it's, that it's going to keep you doing it. And that's the kind of thing that we hope that by exposing our students to these kinds of things, and particularly the research, to get them excited about it like Darwin was excited about his work because, you know, it is long hours in the lab, long hours doing research, Uh, a lot of hard work, uh, and if you're not really excited about it and engaged in it, you probably won't continue in it. So, you know, that's one of the things that that I hope in talking about Darwin Day and sharing about some of Darwin's personal experiences that it will inspire and engage some of the people who are listening, um, one, about him, the man, and then also to think about science as this very exciting and and, um, interesting endeavor. That's a that's a perfect note to end our conversation today. We're running out of time, so thank you, Dr. Degrius. It's been great having you on the show, and I look forward to ha- having you here in person on February third, and to hear more about Darwin, maybe more stories. Oh, great! Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cady, for inviting me, and I'm very excited about coming and talking a bit more about Darwin. Excellent. So that's it for our show today, folks. Uh, we will we will be back next month on Tuesday, February 23rd. And the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique will meet again at Peeves Pub on Wednesday, February the 3rd to hear from Dr. Don Degrius about Darwin and why he remains relevant to us in 2016. Uh, note that the cafe has moved to a Wednesday instead of a, the, our earlier Monday schedule. Uh, and for more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. The show is produced by me, uh, Madhusudan Katti, and uh, Vic Bidoyan, and the theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. And remember, until next month, happy sciencing, because science is a verb.